you know, if you are bringing goodwill, good stuff, what I like to call good stuff, my grandmother called it good stuff. Good stuff is something they can sell, um, that can put some, you know, some dollars in the till that they can use to help pay for a GED for a kid, you know, who's coming out of the juvenile justice system. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and I'd love to hear from you, my listeners. Leave me a comment on ZestfulAging.com. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, is out now, and you can find out more about Judy on her website, judybanker.com. Coming up, a special episode for Earth Day. I interview Adam Minter, who's the author of Second Hand. And just before I start talking about this really lively, engaging interview, I just wanted to note that we spoke uh, while he was in his home in Malaysia. And I am still so taken that I can have a conversation with somebody all the way around the world and uh it sound like it's it sounds like it's just next door it uh it just reinforces how much i love podcasting and what a delight it was for me to speak to adam and get to ask him all the questions the burning questions about thrifting and if that's actually okay and ethical and um, my worries that I'm being uh, an ugly American. But we talk about what happens to our stuff when we don't want it anymore. Now, I expected this book to talk about the environmental uh, consequences of consumption and how we're having these huge landfill problems and sending our stuff overseas. But I was really uh, wrong about that. He follows the the trail of our thrift donations to countries all around the world. And he talks about the subtle um, politics and, and cultural expectations about taking uh, castaways. And it's very interesting. And it's very complex. And certainly it's not as simple as I thought it was. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of enthusiasm in my voice because I was so delighted to be able to talk to Adam about my thrifting, my worries about thrifting, my thoughts about um, developing nations and being an American. So you will definitely hear excitement and enthusiasm. It's a wonderful interview and, and so appropriate for Earth Day. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. And as always, I've got my loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side. So let's begin. We have a great interview for you today. I'm going to be speaking with Adam Minter, who's a columnist for Bloomberg and has been covering waste and recycling industries for nearly two decades. He's the author of the new book, Second Hand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, and Public Publishers Weekly called it a fascinating, eye-opening look at a dynamic, largely unseen world that only starts when one drops off something at a thrift store. And I wish I could have written that review. It's a perfect yeah. uh, summary of your book. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. 
I'm really uh, excited to speak with you. Your book covers so much. And I have to say, you know, I was surprised when I read it. I didn't realize the the depth and uh, the cultural, political uh, landscape that uh, you cover. I, I sort of thought it was going to be the general, you know, there's a lot of consumption. We ha- we're consuming too much and and it's an environmental nightmare. I kind of thought that was going to be the the take home, but it's really not. Right. Well, I think, you know, for most of my career, you know, I've been based in Asia and that's given me the opportunity to have um, sort of a, a more global view of everything. And because I've, you know, been very concerned with waste and recycling, it's given me a very global view of, of what happens to our stuff when we don't want it anymore. And by our and us, I mean, you know, mostly North Americans. Um, and so, you know, really right from the beginning of my time in Asia, I started seeing sort of our cast-offs and unwanted things being imported by people uh, in China, where I was originally based, and, and in other parts of Southeast Asia. So in some sense, you know, the seed for this book um, really dated back there. I wanted to I wanted to show people for a long time, and to some extent I have, that, you know, the journey of their old clothing, of their old sofa, um, whatever it might be, you know, doesn't end at the donation door at the Goodwill. Um, that's really just the beginning of, of this globalized, um, you know, demand for the things that, that we've decided we don't want. And there's so many levels to it. What I found fascinating is, you know, as these so-called developing countries, uh, uh, I, I guess their uh, GMP rises or whatever you want to, how, how you want to describe it, they actually want to start buying different kinds of stuff. So it's constantly changing. Who wants our, our cast-offs? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, where stuff, and I, that ends up being the term I use for it, um, where our stuff goes. But ultimately, you know, it's the secondhand trade is, is dictated by I- income inequalities. And, you know, lower income folks are going to be more likely to buy secondhand stuff than folks who are affluent. And so, so that's been the major dictator, if you will, of why stuff moves overseas in between emerging market countries um, but but it, there are there are complications and wonderful levels to to all of this and, and as you indicate you know that changes I mean I think it's it's almost ingrained in in sort of the North American imagination that you know folks in Africa want secondhand stuff or that's where we send it or that's where and this is a term I don't like where we dump it but you know their their tastes are changing and as they become more affluent and in the African continent at these parts of it are, uh, you know, developing very rapidly, uh, they want to buy new stuff too. So that changes the level of demand. And so you see, you see sort of the balance beam uh, bouncing back and forth. I found it really fascinating as a person who does frequent the thrift stores, and we'll get to that later. Um, But um, that uh, you, you talk about in your book that, uh, African countries actually are quite sophisticated. They don't want just any old T-shirt. They, you know, you talked about the sorting process Uh and how subtle that is. And it's not just like, you know, this is a, this is a good quality or a high brand, but there's so much distinction, um, between like what someone in Africa might want or somebody in another kind of country. Could you talk? I just found that fascinating. You know, it's, it's not just, it's not a big mountain of stuff that gets thrown, thrown down the chute. No, that's, that's correct. And, and, um, and that's one of the things I sort of, one of the myths I wanted to dispel in this book. Uh, you know, there's a character in the book. He's a real person, but, uh, he's a buyer of secondhand clothing from around the world in, in Benin, which is a country next to Nigeria, where he said to me, we don't want your garbage. You know, and he was very emphatic with me, almost angry. And I asked him, you know, uh, what happens if we send you our garbage? And he said, well, then, you know, basically you're not going to get paid. So let me give you a couple of examples of, uh, you know, very general examples of, of just how this, um, you know, how sophisticated this market is. First of all, if, you know, wherever you go in the world, it's quite interesting. Um, amongst the most coveted secondhand clothing is that which is generated in, of all places, 
Canada. And you'd say, why on earth do people want Canadian clothing so badly? Well, one reason is, is that Canada is a cold country, and so its summers are very, very short. And that means that Canadian summer clothing isn't worn very hard. Um, it isn't washed very often. It tends to be in very good condition. And if you think about where most of the secondhand clothing in the world is journeying, it's, it's journeying, the biggest markets are warm climates. So they're looking for that secondhand clothing that's in very good shape, that's been lightly worn. Again, they don't want their garbage. And if you look around the world, you can say, huh, Canada <laughs> fits the bill. You know, so does Sweden for that matter. So, you know, that's interesting. At the same time, if you want to get more grand, um, Japan throws off an enormous amount of secondhand clothing. J the Japanese consumer, despite sort of uh, you know the mythologizing of Marie Kondo and, mm -hmm. and Zen and all this, uh, they are as wasteful, if not more wasteful, than mm -hmm. North American consumers. But their clothing is not very uh, coveted um, in Africa. I'm just focusing on Africa right now, and one reason is is, is the sizing. Um, you know, Japanese tend to be um, you know more dominion. And so the sizes don't work very well. And the second reason is, is that Japanese fashion is quite distinctive. And um, Africans, the African consumer, secondhand consumer, tends to like more of a European or North American look. So Japanese secondhand clothes tends to travel to places in Southeast Asia like Myanmar or, or Malaysia um, where there's just more of that taste. And then you can start getting even more granular from that point, um, you know. People want these kinds of colors. They want these kinds of garments. You know, um, you know, baby clothes do very, very well in different parts of Africa and not other parts of Africa. So, I mean, it, it really does get down to those kinds of levels. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. Um, and you, you talked, you talk a lot. Of course, the theme of your books is consumption. Correct. And I'm wondering about your what you've learned uh, about the need or the desire for humans to be constantly on kind of the prowl for something new, the next thing. Do you have a sense of the psychology? I mean, of course, you're talking to a psychotherapist, right? So <laughs> I'm kind of really fascinated by the human psyche. Yeah. And what is it about humans that we are constantly in consumption mode, one, one way or the other? Well, you know, it's it's such a, a, a wonderful question, and I have to admit that it's not something that I had given much thought to until I started this book. Um, and, and the starting point uh, of this book really uh, was the passing of my mother. And, um, and it was left to my sister and I to, to clean up um, her home. And it was a very small home, but there were a lot of things in that home um, that we had to find a home for, you know, whether it's at a goodwill or give it away to another relative or take it ourselves. And, and initially, you know, it's, it's pretty easy. You know, I can say, oh, I want, you know, my sister said, I want mom's jewelry. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted some of these books. But you reach a point in any of these cleanouts, and I think anyone listening to this podcast uh, has been through this or has worried about going through this or knows somebody who goes through it, um, you reach a point during the cleanout where you say, here's this thing, here are these things that meant a lot to my mother, you know, that meant a lot to my relative, my loved one, my friend, but they don't mean that much to me. And so what am I supposed to do with them? And, and my sister and I reached that point with my mother's china where we were literally saying, it meant something to mom, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. And, and we started, and it, it started hitting me slowly, uh, that, you know, part of the way we build up our own identities, but also the identities of the people around us is we start associating things with them. You know, this is mom's china. This is part of how we view her, you know, this totality of stuff. And as, you know, without, you know, referring to my mother or other loved ones, just ourselves, you know, the brands we buy, um, mm -hmm. the things we buy, the places we frequent, the stores we frequent, the restaurants we frequent, you know, it's, you know, in the United States, it's reached the point, and, and we've got good marketing data on this, you know, where we know, you know, Republicans go to one kind of store and Democrats go to another, I you know. I see, yeah, sure, and, you know, it's, um, it's almost like we're billboards, right, for, well, like, yeah. I want, I want you to know this about me. This is exactly. my narrative. Yeah, I exactly. wear Patagonia and I have a Subaru. Fill in the blanks. You know who I am. 
<laughs> exactly. And it's, it's, it's a very painful thing to take apart. I mean, when you start, you know, taking apart a parent's stuff and start letting it go out into the world via goodwill or whatever it is, it is, I think of, I started to think of it as a second mourning process because you're sort of deconstructing that person's material identity. And, and for this book, I spent time on home cleanouts, um, actually going to, you know, cleanouts with people who help, uh, you know, seniors primarily downsize their homes. And, and I did that in Japan and the United States, and it was the same in Japan as it was in the United States. Uh, this The incredible pain associated with letting go of the material things that uh, loved ones associate, or even a person who is letting go of it, associate with themselves or someone else. Um, and so when you start seeing that pain, you start to understand this compulsion to buy stuff to assemble that identity. As you said, it becomes a billboard, both a billboard for others, but also for ourselves. Oh, that's so fascinating. And I wonder about how it's changed since the industrial age. Well, I think that's a, a very deep question. And, and I think it's accelerated considerably over the last 75 years in, you know, developed economies in Europe and the United States. And, and part of it is, is that the traditional markers of identity, the things that, you know, we used to sort of, the billboards we used to put out there, you know, um, whether it, it be, you know, religion, um, mm -hmm. It would be place. I mean, it used to be that people didn't travel that much, so we had much stronger associations with place, with high schools, you know, social organizations, families. Um, you know, families are, are, you know, are different now. They're smaller, uh, at least in uh, developed countries. And so they're, you know, you certainly can identify with your small family or, you know, small partnership, but you don't have these extended families that, you know, again, gave powerful identities. And so I think, you know, there is this deep compulsion in people to say, I believe belong to X and I want you to know it and I want to know it. And so in the breakdown of these traditional social bonds over the last 75 years, and it happens, I think, in every consumer economy, we start uh, uh, building up new identities based upon acquisition. That's fascinating. Do you see this um, swinging <laughs> um, uh, anytime soon? I mean, do you see people saying, you know what, I've got the brand name this, I've got five labels on my, my clothes, I've got yeah. that, you know, I, all, the, all the stuff, the watch, whatever it is. Um, and it's not, it's not as fulfilling as, as right. I thought it was. What's your sense of um, if, if there's a way out of this consumption? You know, I've thought a lot about that. Um, and, and even, you know, as I was writing the book, I, you know, I was somewhat pessimistic. And then it hit me one day when I wrote the book. And, and, and this book was a journey for me. You know, I, I think people believe when, when an author starts a book, they've got it all figured out. Um, and that's, that's oftentimes not the case. Certainly not for me. I, I, you know, the writing process for me is also a deciding process. And, and for my wife and I, this book was a deciding and uh, process and a journey. And, and, and we started consuming less the more I reported this book. And my wife accompanied me for a lot of the reporting around the world. And, and you know, and she would see the things I saw. And, and we just sort of started, we found ourselves starting to let go. And it hit me sort of very late in this process uh, uh, that others, not just by reading my book, may, may go through that journey as well. But more to the point, I think as more and more uh, people in developed countries, especially the United States and Canada, go through what my sister and I went through, you know, with a home clean out and having to let go of a loved one's things, that's a really profound experience. It's a life altering experience. And I've talked to a lot of people who've been through it and they sort of, they sort of do what I've done, which is say, hey, wait a second. Maybe, maybe this is a bit of a mania. And that's not to reflect poorly on my mother at all. It's a, you know, it's a mania for all of us. And maybe it's time to let go. And I think that process is going to become more common because the baby boom generation is aging. And so the boomers themselves are have, going to have to go through a process of letting go of their parents' stuff and then their own stuff. And if they don't do it, their children will have to do it. And I think there will be, 
you know, I don't know. I'm not predicting a vast social movement, but I, but I do think that you're going to see, you know, uh, an increasing reckoning as this becomes more and more of a factor for the baby boomers. Um, you know, in the way that the baby boomers have influenced so much of, you know, American and global culture, I think they're going to ultimately have an influence on material culture too, because there is going to be a reckoning of what to do with the identities built up with their stuff. That's fascinating. And we, of course, uh, now hear about Swedish death cleaning. Mm -hmm. And you have your own version of that. Would you like to share that with us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, my, uh, my wife, um, you know, as, as, we, uh, as, as we went through this, uh, this is a, it's a bit of a long story, but my, my wife actually started selling off her books. And actually became, uh, over the course of the writing of this book, she, um, she actually started a, a secondhand book, uh, buying and selling business. She's, uh, and so she's got a nice little business now. Um, uh, but one of, one night, uh, while she was, uh, uh, in the midst, the early stages of this business, she actually was messaged by a customer who, uh, who was inquiring about a, a book about minimalism of all things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my wife, my wife, uh, started chatting with, uh, with this person who's a, who is a college student actually. And I know about this because I was sitting next to her and she was mentioning the conversation to me. And, and, and she sort of talked the, uh, the student out of buying the book. And she, she told the student, you know, ultimately, because the student was asking, how do you, how do you deal with all your stuff? And my wife said, basically, well, I think about myself having died and my son being left to throw away all my stuff. And if I think he's going to throw it away, I, I now say to myself, I'm not going to buy it. And so I call that uh, premeditated morbid <laughs> decluttering, basically envisioning your own death and your relatives having to deal with your stuff because you haven't. So, um, you know, uh, PMMDC, uh, PMDC is what we've called it in the book, which, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but it's, it's, it's not a bad technique really you know it's something i you know it's it's something my it's 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 my wife's invention if you will but i've sort of adopted mm -hmm. it as well i we have a son we love him to death and and the thought of him having to go through what i've seen other people go through in the course of cleaning out a home uh, i wouldn't wish that on him so yeah, yeah it is this a, is it, the gift the gift yeah, you're giving him yeah. yeah that's so fascinating so okay so here here's my story um okay. <laughs> i i'm a um I love doing the thrift shopping. I have a really good eye. I'm, I'm fortunate about that. I guess my mom taught me that. And, you know, I love getting something that's a, a, a really high quality piece and, um, and that it's somebody's cast off and I'm giving it new life. And I'm also paying a very good price for it. It's a needle in a, in a haystack, right? And so I have this, vision and please tell me where uh my thinking is off here that you know I'm contributing to the Salvation Army I bring my own bag so I'm not even <laughs> using the plastic bag but my hope of course is that you know I'm somehow contributing to their mission and I, I you know I feel good about that but I also think it's um it might be incredibly naive. So can you sort of go through that with me and, and, and sort of take me through what might be <laughs> wrong with my thinking there, or if it is helpful, um, could you yeah. comment on yeah. that? Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, when you look at charitable organizations that do thrift, um, you, you know, they all have, as you said, a mission. Um, and that mission more often than not, um, is not to give secondhand stuff to poor people around the world. That, that's not the mission. They use secondhand stuff, the selling of secondhand stuff to fund other programs. Um, and in, in secondhand, in my book, I, I use the example of Goodwill International, um, mm -hmm. you know, which has a very sophisticated retailing operation for your secondhand stuff. And, and the point of it is to fund these incredible social service programs in North America that nobody else is doing. They go above, beyond, or, or in most cases, uh, you know, they are, they are the only program for, uh, you know, for what they do. Um, government doesn't do it. So, uh, you know, in Arizona, where I spent a lot of time with Goodwill, they do a lot of job training and education programs for, uh, you know, kids who are coming out of the juvenile justice system. These are kids who, you know, got in trouble with the law at a very young age and have never held a job, don't have basic skills, don't have clothes, don't have GEDs. You know, there's cases where Goodwill will actually 
pay a salary for one of these kids um, at another employer so an employer will take a chance on them. Who else is going to do that? Right, so fund, right. You know, it's amazing work. So to fund that kind of work, they sell your stuff and they have these very sophisticated retail operations. And so, you know, what? what is your role in this? Well, you know, if you are bringing goodwill, good stuff, what I like to call good stuff. My grandmother called it good stuff. Good stuff is something they can sell um, that can put some, you know, some dollars in the till that they can use to help pay for a GED for a kid, you know, who's coming out of the juvenile justice system. So, you know, you're doing a good thing in the sense that it's, you know, it's giving them the opportunity to generate revenue. Now, the flip side of this is, and, and you know, again, I don't work for Goodwill. I'm not a spokesperson for Goodwill, but I spent a lot of time there. Um, and so and so this is something I learned along the way. If you are bringing stuff that's not good to Goodwill or the Salvation right. Army, you are you are costing them money. Yes. You know, they then have to either lose, they either earn less money or they have to pay just like you do to put it in the trash and take it to the landfill or the incinerator. And so um, you're not only, you know, if you, so if you're giving them garbage and I've seen people, I, mm. I sat, I spent hours and hours and hours at Goodwill donation doors watching what comes in. And there's a lot of good stuff that comes in, but there's also a lot of people who use Goodwill as a dump. And, 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 and not only that, but um, as a person who knows the uh, merchandise quite well, I cannot believe what ends up on the rack that they actually think is good enough to put out sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, when when you see the volume of stuff that goes through the door of a Goodwill, um, you know, at the donation door, I, I was just astounded on a Saturday to sit there. Um, and and you, you see the costs that go into hiring and training people to sort the stuff. It's incredible that they're able to organize it and get it on the racks at all. And so there's no question about it. I mean, um, stuff that shouldn't be on the racks does slip through. And it's going to really depend upon you know the level of training of the people you know in the back room during the sorting and and sorting is a very sophisticated operation um, and the best sorters as you would you would guess are the ones who've been doing it for a very long time and have the skills and the eye to do it but but there's definitely going to be stuff that makes it out onto the floor that that probably shouldn't and and that stuff won't sell um, you know on average on average, only about one-third of the stuff that hits the sales floor at a thrift store in the United States, and it's not just Goodwill and Salvation Army, any thrift store, only one-third actually sells on that sales floor. Now, that doesn't mean the rest of it, you know, once it doesn't sell, ends up in, in you know, an incinerator or a landfill, but it, it does mean it has to go somewhere else, and so it ends up costing that thrift store some money, even though they may find another way to sell it. They won't make as much money on it as they would have or it becomes a cost. So, you know, again, I, 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 I always, you know, caution people, if you're going to donate stuff to these thrift stores, mm -hmm. make sure it's, it's something that they can sell, that it doesn't become mm -hmm. a cost for them. Yes, that, that's really good advice. Now, in terms of a middle-class woman going in there looking for high-end, um, <laughs> you know, stuff, is that being an ugly American, in a sense, I mean, is it taking advantage of a system that is really there for people with less income? I guess that's what I grapple with. Well, you know, I, I, two answers to that. Really, these these thrift stores are there for everyone. Um, they are not, you know, they are not there for somebody with less income. I mean, uh, uh, they are there for somebody who's willing to go in and buy the stuff, whether it's it's great stuff or, or poor stuff. And and Goodwill, I, I guarantee, would be the first to tell you that. And again, it's this great misconception out there that Goodwill is there to provide uh, goods to low-income people. That is a very large portion of of their um you know their clientele but ultimately goodwill wants to see the stuff move they want to sell it no matter who is going to buy it mm -hmm. and they're look, looking to maximize um the revenue out of those mm -hmm. donations any way they can in recent it's years it's a means to an end for them Yes, absolutely. And so there's absolutely no reason you should feel bad about that. In fact, I mean, if you're going to Goodwill and looking for, uh, uh, you know, you know, expensive stuff, brands that, you know, whatever it is, um, first of all, join the club. There's lots of people doing that and going I into I see them. I see them. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and the cool thing about Goodwill and thrift stores, and I love this about them, is that they are engines for entrepreneurs. There are so many small businesses, you know, around North America in particular that have started by going to Goodwills and picking through the racks and the bins and then going and selling that stuff on eBay. And mm -hmm. that's great. Because um, it, it's two things. One, it's, it's people starting a secondhand business, and I think that's cool. Two, I mean, if people are going into Goodwill and, and diving into the stuff and going through it more carefully than the sorters are capable of doing because there's so much, that means that secondhand stuff is more likely to be sold. And so, so that's super cool. The other thing to remember is Goodwill itself wants to see um, some of that really good stuff uh, selling at a higher price point. And they actually um, make a point increasingly at various Goodwill federations around North America of pulling the good stuff out of the really good stuff, the brands, the more expensive mm -hmm. stuff out of the racks mm -hmm. and actually putting it online. Uh, they have a uh, online site that. called yes. Shop Goodwill. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and, and some of the stuff that goes on Shop Goodwill, I mean, it's expensive, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's no different than eBay. So, so no, you shouldn't feel bad about that. I mean, anytime you are buying from Goodwill, you are helping or the Salvation Army, whoever it is, you are helping them further their mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is very good to hear. And I I totally get it about, you know, you don't use it as a garbage dump. You use right. it when you have, you know, stuff that you're no longer using but has value. Right. Let's take a minute to thank our sponsor, Copper Compression, for supporting the Zestful Aging podcast. Copper Compression was in the news recently when they donated their entire stock of 18,000 masks to New York and New Jersey hospitals. Thank you so much for that. We're happy to work with a brand that has its values in the right place. Copper Compression offers a full range of copper-infused wellness products like braces, gloves, and sleeves that provide targeted relief and the support you need through your active recovery. They have the highest copper content on the market, guaranteed. Copper-infused fabric is really an amazing material. It has antimicrobial and anti-odor properties, and it helps increase blood flow. This unique combination of compression and copper gives you the strength to heal. Many of you know that I'm an avid tennis player, and over the years I've had to deal with the pain of plantar fasciitis. And for those of you who haven't experienced it, it literally feels like walking on little nails. It is very painful. Uh, but their plantar fasciitis foot supports have really helped me. They're also offering a generous 30% off on your first order just for zestful aging listeners. So go to coppercompression.com forward slash zestful aging, or you can just use the promo code zestful aging at checkout for your discount. Again, a big thanks to Copper Compression for their support. Now, speaking of value, um, let's talk about the decline in overall quality of stuff. I also found that to be fascinating. It really resonated. And um, can you can you talk a little bit about what you've seen about sure, this? Sure, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, again, let's, let's start at Goodwill and, and, and the sorters. And the sorters are, are an amazing resource. And, 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 you know, it was a real pleasure for me to spend time just in the sorting rooms at Goodwill talking to people about what they see flowing through the doors. And one theme that came up repeatedly, um, repeatedly every day in the Goodwill in the textile sorting areas is people telling me, the sorters telling me the stuff is getting poorer. The thread counts are getting fewer. The quality of the fabrics is is starting to fray, um, and it's changed rapidly, especially over the last eighteen to twenty four months. And you know, I'm not going to name any brands. You know, I don't want to you know, put a black mark on any brands in particular. But I would sit in there. I'd literally sit <laughs> on a stool, and and you know, a sorter would hold up a garment for me and say, you know, eighteen months ago, twenty four months ago, we would get this brand, and it's something we could put on the rack and sell for three ninety nine. Now we 
consider it a dollar ninety nine brand. Some you know the consumers know they're, they're it's not going to last in a wash, and so it's it's just falling apart. Or it's something that we're going to go and throw in a bin that's destined to be made into rags or stuffing. Um, and this is a theme that doesn't just happen in Goodwills in North America. I mean, if you go to Africa and you go to the uh, secondhand markets there you'll hear the same thing um, and it's not just clothing they're talking about either is the overall quality of the stuff is declining rapidly and it's making what's frightening about this is that it's making the second-hand stuff um, less attractive and it's making the new stuff more attractive um, because the new stuff um, manufacturers especially in South Asia Southeast Asia um, China have become very adept at making um, uh, you know stuff very cheaply um, it's it's the price points are converging and many cases, you'll see the new stuff now competing with the secondhand. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've seen that, um, especially at the Walmarts and the Targets. Yeah, where, exactly. Yeah. Ex- exactly. I mean, uh, for this book, I, you know, one of the Goodwills I spent the most time in, in Arizona, uh, in Tucson, uh, was right across the street from a Goodwill. And the manager, Kathy, of that store told me that she is constantly, you know, um, on you know, monitoring what's happening in that Walmart because that Walmart um, is her competition, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's because the stuff is so cheap there. And it's, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any grudge against Walmart. You know, somebody who shops at Walmart has their reasons for shopping at Walmart. Uh, the stuff is very cheap, but the, the quality, you know, in, in many cases, and I wouldn't say in all cases, but in many cases isn't very good. But, but what you see happening then is, is people opting to buy, you know, that cheaper Walmart garment, if we're just going to talk about garments, you know, over a better quality secondhand garment at Goodwill that's priced at or near or less than that Walmart garment. And so that's a very big shift, not just in the secondhand market, but just how people look at, uh, you know, price value and the stuff uh, they want and can afford and, and why they buy it in general. And there's, you know, there's certainly a stigma for some people in buying used, right? I know I'm stating the the obvious here, but most people, I think, would rather go to Walmart and buy the new stuff and have yeah. the new stuff smell than go to hey. a thrifty right. shopper. Yeah, I, I like new stuff. You know, I'm human. You know, we all... <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, right. You know, we all, we all like, we all like our new stuff. Um, and I, I think that's a very human compulsion. I mean, uh, you know, shifting back to emerging markets, um, you know, in Malaysia, uh, where I live or in West Africa, where I've done a lot of reporting. I mean, you, you do see people when they get that opportunity to buy new, when they reach the income level to buy new, that's what they want to do. You know, mm-hmm. instead of using that secondhand phone, they want the new phone. They want the latest mm-hmm. iPhone, you know, or whatever, or the latest Samsung, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I, th- I mean, that's, it's a very, it's a very human desire um and and you know and it's it's one that i think um you know it's it's interesting you know we sort of depend consciously or unconsciously for you know these emerging markets to buy all of this secondhand stuff and and that's great and they have and they will but as they become more affluent they will buy less of it and that will that will then raise the question of what happens to it all mm-hmm mm-hmm I have to ask you about the rag makers because sure. I had never heard of such a thing. And I guess I, you know, I think I have a fairly large fund of knowledge, but I never knew about the sort of the precision <laughs> that right. goes into making good rags and that rags are like, you, you describe it like the backbone of civilization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's, I, I mean, I, this was one of the things I, I badly wanted to do with this book because uh, I'd known about it for a long time and, and I wondered how extensive it was, the rag-making industry. So, you know, every you know every industry needs rags. If you think of bars and restaurants, they need rags to wipe down their countertops. If you think about car washes, they need rags to wipe down your windshield. If you think about oil and gas companies, they need rags to wipe down, you know, drips and leaks on their pipelines. It goes 
on and on, uh, you know, hospitals need rags to wipe down everything. And so you, you then have to ask yourself, where do these rags come from? Well, there are synthetic rags, you know, made from, you know, plastics and various fibers. But, um, but for, in general, rags in the course of, of human industrial history, which extends past the Industrial Revolution, have used old garments, old bed sheets, old hospital smocks, and cut them up with, you know, scissors at home and use them to wipe things down until they wouldn't wipe anymore. You know, the trade of rags and old clothing to make them into rags, we have records of it dating back to the medieval period. But it really accelerated, it really accelerated um, in the industrial, after the Industrial Revolution, when suddenly there was a lot more clothing around and the value of clothing declined. I mean, when people were making all their own clothing at home, um, that clothing was worth a lot of money. But suddenly when you start buying store-bought clothing, you know, 200 years ago, it starts declining, declining, declining in value. And 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 so as, as it declines, there's more and more clothing and people have all this excess clothing and you began to have tradespeople, tradesmen and tradeswomen who would buy these rags, take them to rag cutting operations, which might be someone's living room with a bunch of scissors in it, but it became much more industrial where the clothes would be cut up. And this would expand it and expanded and expanded as people had more and more store-bought clothing until the early 20th century, where it was a major U.S. industry. There were dozens and dozens of factories, and it was a major U.K. industry where people would take old clothes, cut them up, and sell them to, to industrial facilities all over the United States and the world. And this industry has continued. Um, there are rag makers all over the world, not just in the United States. Um, you know, a major rag making center is India, where they will take old clothes, cut them up. And, you know, as I say in the book, a rag is a tool. No rag is the same. Um, and is, there's no, um, there's, there's no demand the same. For example, you know, if you have a, a cotton t-shirt, a cotton t-shirt that's been washed a lot of times will absorb very nicely. And that can be used by, anyone, a bar, a restaurant, uh, a hospital, an auto garage, an oil and gas company. But if you have a poly, a poly polyester cotton blend t-shirt, that becomes more problematic because polyester, as we all know, picks up static electricity. So if you're somewhere where there's the risk of, of an explosion like an oil and gas company, you don't want to be wiping down the pipeline with a polyester t-shirt because you might spark something. So While it's, you're on your cell phone, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so it's this incredibly complex industry that makes billions and billions of rags and it's it's the final resting place for a lot of uh, for a lot of our clothing and it has been for hundreds of years if not you know longer That's, it's it's fascinating now another thing that was completely mind blowing to me is we talk you talked about shoddy um, and I was fascinated by that. I'm a knitter, so I'm pretty familiar with, you know, the whole wool thing sure. and felting and all this stuff. But what I wanted to talk to you about specifically is how polar fleece has moved in and, you know, what your thoughts are about that. Sure, sure. So um, shoddy, um, for your listeners, is just a very low quality wool. Um, that's been manufactured uh, since the uh, early 19th century. And the reason um, it's you, you, people manufacture this very low-quality wool is because nobody can really do anything else with very high-quality wool. So if you have a, a wonderful sweater in your closet that you love very much, wool sweater, you know, that can't really be recycled. It, it doesn't absorb as a rag. Wool doesn't absorb. So there's, you know, the question became in the Industrial Revolution, what do we do with all this wool, uh, this good wool? Some people would actually compost. It. It's an organic. Um, it's an organic uh, uh, fabric. Right. Sure. You know, sure. It was used as fertilizer, believe it or not. But somebody in, in England, I believe it was 1814. We'd need to check that. Developed a, a technique to basically rip it apart and then re uh, rebind it into this very low quality fabric called shoddy. And there's been a shoddy industry around the world for two centuries. And it moved from the UK to Italy. And then in the mid 1970s, it start it moved to uh, India. And so uh, for the last 50 years, really, um, most of the world's unwanted wool clothes would actually move to this town in India called Panipat, which is about an hour and a half drive north of Delhi, where they would rip up, they'd use machines to do it, rip up the, mm -hmm. the wool garments and turn it into very low quality um, 
uh, blankets called relief and blankets. And ugly. And they're ugly. They're ugly. They smell musty. Uh, but they were perfect for one use. And that use is as a relief blanket. And a relief blanket is, is the wool blanket that gets donated in the midst of an earthquake, a flood. It's what the Red Cross would bring in, all these relief agencies, the UN High Commission for Refugees. And they would buy hundreds of thousands and millions of these at a time from Panapot. And so it was a great system. It meant your old sweater would ultimately end up as a, as a relief blanket somewhere. Uh. So it would get some use out of it, at least some final use. Well, the thing that's happened in the last 10, 15 years is that the shoddy relief blanket has gotten competition from polar fleece. And the Chinese, in particular, developed technology to make very, very um, uh, cheap polar fleece blankets, which work even better in a relief operation because they are very lightweight um, and they are almost price competitive, um, almost price competitive with shoddy blankets. And so what that's done is it's basically gutted Panapot's shoddy industry. So now instead of making all these relief blankets um, for uh uh, for for the Red Cross, uh, Panapot's uh, rat, uh, uh, shoddy makers have basically, the ones who remain, who haven't gone out of business, uh, mm. those who remain have transitioned into making polar fleece. And so that's bad all around from a sustainability perspective because polar fleece is polyester, it's plastic, and there really is no way of, of recycling that stuff. Um, once that polar fleece blanket is done as a polar fleece blanket, that's pretty much it. It's, it's headed to an incinerator where it maybe will generate some en energy as it's burnt or a landfill so so you see um, you know this pursuit of convenience and 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 better quality too uh, because a fleece blanket if I'm in a if I'm in a, a, a earthquake I want a polar fleece blanket I honestly mm -hmm. I don't want a I don't want a shoddy one but you've seen this you know this this pressure put on um, the secondhand industries and it's it's very troubling Mm hmm. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is polar fleece also sheds um, part, you know, particles of plastic into the water. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, you know, uh, different polar fleece is of different quality, and so some will not. I mean, there's like anything in the world today. There's there's gradients of quality, but the cheaper polar fleece will um, will shed fa fragments, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes uh, that becomes a, 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 a an immediate air pollution problem. Uh, people talk about the water side of it, but you know, I I don't want my five year old uh, breathing in those uh, microparticles either. So yeah, it becomes an issue. Mm -hmm. mm. So, you know, one of the takeaways uh, of your book is really, I think, to look for quality and use your stuff as long as you can. And that might mean it's more expensive um, in the beginning. Uh, it's, it's more of an investment, but that but that you have to divide it out over its lifespan. Is that am I uh, yeah. getting that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, I encourage the way I live my my own life, my my family lives our life is we try to buy more durable products. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's got a great sustainability message to it. I mean, the longer you use something, the lower its environmental impact in the sense that you're not going to be buying more stuff. But, you know, forget the sustainability side of it. It's good home economics, you know, paying more so you pay, paying more up front so you pay less over the long haul. Um, you know, I think, I think anybody, um, you know, who has a budget, you know, my family has a budget, you know, uh, thinks in terms of, you know, your, your short-term expenses, but also your long-term savings. And, and so it's, it's, it's also, it's just good, solid home economic sense. You know, if you're buying that better thing, you know, whatever it may be, a better pair of socks, you know, uh, you know, the better, the better phone, if you will, um, you're gonna, you, you may be paying more upfront, but long-term you're going to be, you're going to be spending, you're going to be spending less. And so, um, so that's good home economics. It's good sustainability. And, and ultimately it means that, you know, when my son has to, or even my wife and I, when we decide to clean out, uh, you know, what stuff we have in our home, um, it's going to be easier for us to find homes for it because it's good stuff. Um, not all of it will be. And again, I don't want any but do you think we're living in a home full of the finest antiques because we're not <laughs> um, but but it means that it, it it should be easier for our home to sort of uh, go into the flow of the secondhand economy than if it's mm -hmm. it's stocked with very low quality products
You're not shopping at Ikea. I, I, no, I got no. that pretty clearly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ikea, you know, is an interesting example of, 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 of sort of the problems that we face as a, a consumer society. Um, you know, uh, uh, the Ikea bookshelf, the famous one, the Billy bookshelf, but which by some accounts is, is the most purchased piece of furniture in oh. global history. Everybody buys it. Everybody knows what it is. Um, it's a great cheap bookshelf. You assemble it at home. The problem with the Billy bookshelf is moving it. Um, has anybody's ever tried to move one of those? Well, no, it shatters. It breaks. You put it in the oh. back of the moving truck, the pickup truck, you know, whatever it is. Uh, by the time you get to your destination, it's cracked. Those 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 studs are starting to pop through. It's not meant to last. It's essentially disposable furniture, you know. And and uh, you know, I don't want to pick on IKEA, but I'll pick on IKEA. I mean, you know, I, I you know, people get really worked up about plastic bags and plastic straws. Um, that's fine. You know, the impact of those Billy bookshelves, I guarantee you, is much larger. A Billy bookshelf oh, is wow. is a is a lot of plastic straws. You know what I mean? Oh. And so. And so, so that's a great example of what we're getting at. Now, does that mean you need to go and buy solid oak furniture, you know, <laughs> at the local, you know, at the local uh, furniture store? Well, you yeah. can. And, and the great thing is there's a lot of solid oak furniture that's going for cheap at your local thrift stores. And I, I encourage people or antique stores, I encourage people to go and look at it. But again, it's just a great example of how buying better can be good both for your pocketbook and, and for the overall environment. Because those Billy bookshelves are ultimately ending up in landfills. Yeah, that that's uh, it's a like the whole metaphor for yeah. for the book. How do you teach your son about this? Um, we do it just in terms of uh, uh, shopping. You know, when when we when we shop for things, and, and we shop is you know, it's funny. People people seem to think like we're we're living a minimalist lifestyle here in our home, and we're not. We're human beings as well. We go shopping. Um, you know, and so it's it's been a couple ways in terms of toys. He's a young uh, he's our young son. We we opt not to buy as much as possible plastic toys. You know, mm -hmm. we like to buy wood. I mean, Legos are an exception. They're very mm -hmm. well made. You know, there's a lot of secondhand Legos goes out there but you know just explaining to him that when you're done with this your cousin he has a cousin who's a, a couple years younger she can have it if we buy a good one you know and mm -hmm. and he gets very into this idea of oh this is going to be eves later that's the name of his cousin oh you know oh, that's lovely yeah and it's, it's a whole sharing theme there exactly and, and, <laughs> and, and we do that with clothing as well i mean he's a boy she's a girl so there's some limits to it um just in terms of shape and size but but um and as he gets bigger that gets harder but again you know he's he's aware that you know the stuff we get for him you know it's going to go to his cousin or it might go to you know some of his friends and and so we very much have that in his head very early on that you know it's it's temporary the stuff that you're going to have is temporary it's yours until it's not yours and then you're going to know the next person who gets it and so we sort of personalize secondhand in that way you know it's not put just putting it through a donation door and hoping for the best though we've done that with some stuff um but uh it's 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 you know it's personalizing the hand me down you know only it's not a hand me down in our home it's a hand me down in someone else's home so so that's a way we've we've really done it yeah yeah that's a great way you know for the people uh listening uh many of them are empty nesters and in the the phase of life where they are probably downsizing um going through their stuff uh trying to clear a path all of that do you have any advice or, or guidance you'd like to give them as they struggle with this this really difficult task? Well, it, it is. It's an incredibly difficult task. And the first thing I want to do is acknowledge that is it's an incredibly difficult task. It can be a very painful task, and it can be a very stressful task. You know, it can be very stressful on families to go through this process. And families, you know, if there's if there's a home with a lot of stuff in it, you know, it's no secret. People started saying to themselves, and nobody likes to hear this, but oh no, what are we going to do when so and so goes? Um, you know, that's that's very much part of the American condition you know, the human condition now. So, um, you know, it's first, you know, no, you are not alone. Every, you know, others have gone through this. Um, there are services out there to help you make these decisions if you feel like you can't do it with your family. And you will be surprised at the number of people who do want your stuff. It's it's true um, that, you know, uh, homes are filled um, increasingly with stuff that, that nobody does want. I mean, collectibles, uh, 
today are not necessarily collectibles tomorrow. But there is, you know, there is demand for stuff out there for secondhand stuff. And, and, you know, and we haven't talked about it, but it, it is small but growing, but there is increasing demand, um, you know, from, from younger people for secondhand stuff. You know, you see the millennials, um, you know, uh, increasingly adopting secondhand lifestyles and wanting a lighter lifestyle. You know, it's not as big as it's sometimes depicted in, in the media, but, but it is out there. Um, there are immigrant communities and there are businesses that are looking for secondhand stuff. And so, you know, this, this feeling that one gets, um, in the co- at the beginning, especially of a clean out, that nobody is going to want this, that all these things I've accumulated over the course of my life are for not this identity I've built. It, it, it isn't, you know, it can be a real self-esteem issue. I learned that in the course of doing this. You know, it shouldn't be that way. At, at the same time, you know, if you're going into a process like this saying, you know, I paid, you know, $2,000 for this dining room table and by golly, I'm going to get at least $2,000 out of it. No, you're not. Um, but you're, you know, that's just not going to happen. But, but you may very well find somebody who gets that dining room table and loves it as much as you did and will look at it as a great thing and something that maybe, you know, moved back and forth, you know, through members of their family, you know, over the years. And so you take solace from that, you know, um, that there is that demand and you just, you just need to find, uh, the companies that, that see it the same way as you do. So they can go online and look for help with clean outs. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's, there's, there's all kinds of ways to do this. Um, you know, there's, there's an organization called the National Association of Senior Move Managers. And one of the things they specialize in is helping seniors downsize and declutter for moves to smaller quarters. It could be senior living. Um, and so, and so it's a wonderful organization and the sorters, um, who work with them. Uh, you know, they're almost like counselors in a way. I don't want to overstate that, but, but they're very experienced with this and, and they're very good at talking folks through that process of letting go. Um, and I think, I think that's terrific. And I've spent time with them and there's more and more companies like that. You know, um, I, I recommend companies associated with the National Association of Senior Move Managers just because they're credentialed in a sense. But, you know, call around. You would be surprised at the number of companies out there who do this and who know how to sit. You know, maybe, maybe it's not you. Maybe it's it's your elderly parents who need somebody who's not a child to sit with them mm-hmm. and do this because because these kinds of cleanouts can generate real family conflict as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it, you know, and so um, sometimes it's better to have an outside third party saying, "Look, you know, Doris, you don't need the three mm-hmm. sets of china," mm-hmm. you know, and it's easier for a third party to say that than a daughter to say that. You know what I mean? Yes, I can uh, see that. You know, so that's a really good thing. Um, you know, you know, and if there's, if you reach a point where, where you're like, you know what, I just need somebody to, to take this stuff and find the value in it and I don't want to look at it anymore. There are the, you know, 1-800, you know, uh, what is it, uh, got junk trucks and they'll come in and they'll take everything and it will be fairly unsentimental, but, but they'll help you do it. You know, so there's whole gradients and of, of, you know, people who can help with this kind of thing. And, and really, you know, the, the beauty of the internet is you can go online and find every, every, every kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for people to know because it can, especially if they're only children, yeah. uh, to be sort of saddled with this and uh, and the guilt and there's so many feelings, emotions, um, and you're grieving. So you know, it's yeah. it's just a lot to ask. Well, I really appreciate you uh, talking to us about this. Fascinating book. I, I truly enjoyed it. Are you, do you know what's coming up next for you in terms of a project? I don't know yet. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you finish a book and, uh, and, uh, you know, the first question you get is what's the next one? And, yeah, and, right. You know, and, and that's, that's total, it's fair game. I totally get yeah, it. Yeah. But, but one thing I, I promised my wife we would wait till the middle of this year before we start contemplating the next one. And, and so I'm trying to hold true to that. So. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Adam. It's a wonderful book. I hope people take a look at it. It's uh, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. And what's the best place to find out more about you? Um, you can just Google my name. Um, you'll mm-hmm. find uh, whatever I've been writing uh, most recently. You know, I write columns for Bloomberg as well. You'll see links mm-hmm. to the book and all kinds of interviews. Uh, you can follow me on social media. I'm fairly active on Twitter and Facebook as well. So that'll give you a sense of what I'm reading and what I find interesting out there at at the moment. 
That's great. Thank you again. It was really interesting. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Adam. I'm sure you heard the enthusiasm in in both of our voices. I have to admit, I was talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that was thrifting. So I felt like I had a Q&A of, uh, you know, with the person who is most expert in the world of thrifting. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of the interview for me was talking about how our identities are wrapped up with the products that we buy and where. I mean, I'm sure that people have seen uh, all of the sweatshirts and t-shirts and hats. Uh, I could say particularly in the U.S., but even when I travel, I see this, and we have essentially become walking billboards. Uh, this is a fairly new phenomenon that our stuff has become really much more important to us as demonstrating who we are, what we believe in. And um, of course, before the, the Industrial Revolution, it was more about who we were affiliated with, our families, our towns, perhaps our churches, um, or religious beliefs. So stuff is is being used now to kind of help us identify who we are to ourselves and to the world we live in. And I found that to be just so interesting as a social worker and someone who observes culture. And I hope you did too. This was one of my favorite interviews, and I would welcome any and all comments about it on my website, ZestfulAging.com. There is a place for you to add any comments, and I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. Hello, Zesties. I want to tell you about one of my all-time favorite exercise and stress reduction tools, which I am really relying on during this quarantine, but I've sung its praises for years. The benefits are seemingly endless. Uh, It's great for toning and strengthening muscles. It improves your lymph system, your metabolism. It helps with joint pain and balance, and it's even used by NASA astronauts because it's such an efficient way to exercise. And if you're older or you're worried about your balance, you can order a stabilizer bar to hang on to. I'm talking about my NEDAC Rebounder mini trampoline. I put on my music and I have my own dance party. Because for me, exercise needs to be fun and invigorating. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Now is not the time for the philosophy of no pain, no gain, because we're in enough pain. This is a way to feel good and energized and have fun. It really does help mood as well. And I like that NEDAC is made in the USA and it is really solid. I've had mine for 15 years and it's still in great shape. The NEDAC Rebounder will help us get through this quarantine in better shape mentally and physically. And there's also a model that folds up if space is an issue. One of my clients puts it on her driveway and uses it while she's watching her kids during the quarantine. Anyway, I can't recommend NEDAC Rebounders enough. They are a worthwhile investment in your health and overwhelm overall well-being, especially now. If you are interested in a mini trampoline, please don't buy a cheap one. Those can be actually dangerous, and it is really worth uh, investing in a good quality one. And right now, if you use the coupon code just for Zestful Aging listeners, the code is Zestful, they are going to include a free cover for you. So go to NEDAC.com. It's N-E-E-D-A-K.com. And if you have any questions, you can contact me at ZestfulAging.com. I really am their biggest fan. 
It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.